Stalk on earth a quill, and every man ascribed by a trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You know, the love of God is, is something we can't fathom. It's inexhaustible. In fact, every time we begin to think of the things of the Lord and try to, uh, try to measure it, try to express the magnitude of it, uh, it's a futile effort on our part. Words, words can never express it enough. I uh, have shared so often the quote from uh, um, A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, when he said, whatever we think God to be, He is not. And the reason for that is we can take our imagination and our vocabulary to the furthest extent that we know how to use them to try to express the infinite God that we serve. And it would not have even come close yet. And so, uh, oftentimes we try to picture, envision, uh, try to describe, I guess would be the better word, uh, God's attributes. And the truth is they're indescribable. We can do our best, and I think it does as well to study them, no doubt, and to try to express them as best we can in the terms that we know how to express them in. But the truth is they're inexhaustible. They're, they're infinite. And uh, I, I'll tell you, when we begin to, to see God the way that He is, and we begin to understand who we are by nature, it just causes us to wonder even more why God bothered. Uh, I'm thankful He did. But, you know, the psalmist said, When I consider thy heaven, the work of thy hands, the sun, moon, and stars which thou hast ordained, he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? And, uh, you know, he, he had the same wonderment. He was like, when I see God and understand that He is not able to be comprehended by human minds, and then I look at man and see what we are, what is man that thou art mindful of Him, Lord? I, I don't understand. But I am so grateful for it. Love, the love of God is something I don't know that we'll ever understand this side of heaven. We can enjoy it. Uh, we can be thankful for it, grateful for it. I don't know that we can ever fully understand it. And I'm not so sure. I, I, you know, We get to heaven, the Bible says that we'll know uh, things that are now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face we'll understand, we'll know these things. I wonder sometimes if even the love that God has had for us, if that will always be an eternal mystery to us, why He would. And there's no doubt that He does. I don't think that's ever a question. Uh, his reasoning for it, though, I don't know that we can ever understand. And um, just something to, to comprehend and, and to ponder a little bit. Well, uh, let's turn to um, Psalm 12. Psalm 12. And uh, we're going to do our best. Um, and, and boy, I'll tell you, do you all believe in miracles? They, you believe they still can happen? It's going to be a miracle if I can end this by 2 o'clock. <laughs> We went a little long in the 11 o'clock hour, and I gave you a little more time at lunch because of that. But, uh, but folks, the, the, the stuff we've been dealing with today, the topics that we've been dealing with from God's Word, I believe, are, are uh, vitally important. In the day that we're living, I think more and more so. Um, and, and somewhere along the line, we've got to get serious about these things. And uh, they've got to become more than just a theme for a message or a topic. They've got to become something that we live. And um, the importance of God's Word being our authority, God's Word being infallible, and to believe that we have in our hands today uh, an infallible, uncorrupt, inspired and preserved supernaturally uh, the very Word of God itself in our King James Bible. I, I strongly believe this. I have studied the topic for a number of years because there are a lot of versions out there, thousands of them at this point. And, uh, and we want to be right. We want to be truthful. And I've spent a lot of time studying uh, which ones are out there and why they were written. Uh, their motivations for uh, what what was going on, 
in, in studying this for a number of years, I can cite a lot of uh, human factors, evidences as to why I believe very strongly without any question in my mind that our old King James Bible is the inspired, preserved Word of God without error. Uh, not everybody holds that position, and I understand that. But I want to try to give you some background as to how we got so many other versions of Scripture and, and why it is important that we have one definitive authoritative source. I'm going to start by saying this, and I've said it so often before. We need to keep in mind that things that are different are not the same. And I know that sounds very simplistic, but when you begin to change even one word of Scripture, you begin to change what, what it teaches and you begin to erode the very authority that you claim that it has. You begin to say, well, this is not accurate in this area, and if it's inaccurate in any area, then how can you trust any other area of it? it it's, got to be, it's got to be something that we are established on, that our minds are there. So, Lord willing, we're going to uh, begin with some Scripture, uh, show what God's promise is, and then I'm going to spend pretty much the rest of the hour giving you some history um, and some, some reasons why people did what they did. And um, so we'll take a, a look at some of these things. Let's look in uh, Psalm 12, if you will. And we already read verse number 6, but I want to read it again. Uh, we read it in the earlier hour. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And so we know that the words of God are pure. Uh, they've been tried. And then I want you to notice in verse number 7, uh, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, when we look at the Word of God being preserved from the generation of the psalmist till forever... We have to understand then that God preserves His Word. Which Word was it? The Word that in verse 6 said, they are pure words. There's not, there's not an error in them. There's not problems with it. It is a pure Scripture. That is vitally important that we hold to this, that God has preserved the pureness of His Word for every generation. Uh, from the time they were written... Till the present day, they continued. There continues to be a pure word out there that is without error and without fault. Uh, if this was not the case, then for the last 400 years uh, plus, uh, or about 300 of those years, we would have been without a preserved word for English-speaking people. You can say, "Well, they're preserved in the originals," and I believe that they are. But if we don't believe in the preservation without error in our King James Bibles, then we are saying then that for a whole generation of people who did not know Hebrew, who did not know Greek, that they were without a Scripture. And the Bible says that He is going to preserve it for every generation. There have been some major languages over the years. Uh, Hebrew was a, a universally spoken language for a long time in the Old Testament. Um, there was a Greek that came into play in the New Testament time period that became a universal language. Pretty much everybody spoke it, and it was the language of trade. Uh, even people from other countries oftentimes could at least uh, understand Greek. In the day that we live, and for the last several hundred years, ever since the England uh, had the uh, world empire where it said that the sun never set on the English empire, uh, English became a national, international language, a language that everybody could speak and understand. And God has always, I believe, kept a purified and a preserved word in the languages that were uh, kept uh, and universally spoken throughout the world. Uh, keep in mind that things that are different are not the same. So just because there are multiple versions of the English language Bible out there doesn't mean that they're all of the pure words of God. But there is a pure word of God, and we hold to that very strongly. Uh, I want to just point out a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, error in doctrine. 
began to creep into the church. It's nothing new in the present day. Okay, unless, unless we think, boy, in the last few years there's been a lot of error of doctrine in our uh, mix. The truth is, all the way back to the early church uh, in Jerusalem and then later on in Antioch, or I'm sorry, in Ephesus, um, where the cent- kind of the central hubs, if you will, of Christianity at that time, uh, started in Jerusalem. Later on, under Paul's ministry, the kind of the central focus of Christianity started moving more towards Ephesus and less out of Jerusalem. And during that first century, Paul writes in his epistles, especially to the church at Corinth and even to the church at Thessalonica, um, a couple other, uh, Galatia especially, uh, he talks about the fact that they are so soon removed from the gospel that had been preached. And lest we think we're unique to this, error in doctrine began creeping in immediately, even under the apostles' ministries. It has been a ongoing battle where Satan has tried to sow seeds of corruption into the purity of the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what took place in that early church was, and as the writers of Scripture wrote these things, they said, listen, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which is preached, let him be accursed. And they would make such statements like this, saying that this is, this is something that God has given by inspiration, and it is not to be changed. So they were instructing that the doctrine that we have should come from an unchangeable source and a source that is considered to be pure. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 this morning, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. The very first one on the list was for doctrine. And in Greek writing, which is interesting, when they gave a list of things, they would always put the primary of importance at the top of the list. It's just the way the Greeks wrote things. And out of all that list, doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The very top one, the very first one, is in doctrine. In fact, in the book of Acts, the Bible talks about those that were in the early church, that they um, were steadfast, uh, they fellowshiped uh, steadfast in first, the very first thing, in doctrine. In doctrine. And then in fellowship and the other things that followed this. Doctrine being the key thing, the importance of the purity of doctrine. So what took place was, uh, when Scripture was written, and, and up until, uh, in fact, there is historical records that up until uh, just after 300 A.D., there is actual historical record of eyewitness accounts of people going to the church at Smyrna and actually seeing the letter that John penned on the Isle of Patmos to Smyrna, the seven letters to the seven churches, uh, they actually had the physical paper with his handwriting on it up until about 300 A.D. But understand that because of the paper that it was written on, the handling of Scriptures, uh, we have lost the originals. They are no longer in existence today, but they were. There were plenty of eyewitness accounts to it. Uh, and so what they would do is they would transcribe uh, Scripture. And there was a group of people, especially in that first century, who said, uh, we want to make sure that our doctrine is pure. And we are going to go to the Scriptures to get our doctrine so that we know that it's pure. Now, there's an assumption that had to be made at that point, And that was this. That the word, the Scriptures that they were getting their doctrine from also had to be pure. If there was impurity in the, in the Scriptures, there would be impurity in doctrine. And so you have a group of people from from the early churches in Jerusalem and Ephesus and those that came out of those churches, the missionary journeys, the churches in Corinth and Thessalonica, uh, Ephesus, Galatia, Philippi, Macedonia, uh, the area of Macedonia, the areas in Asia, the areas in Greek, uh, in Greece and over in Rome. Uh, all of these churches uh, are first century churches that are uh, desiring to be pure in doctrine and because of that they wanted a pure word. So they would, when they would make copies of these writings, the scriptural writings. They would use men that were by profession scribes. That's what they did for a living. And they were meticulous. Now, not in every case, but in many cases, when they were making copies, they would take such precautions, and each group did them a little bit differently, but they would take such precautions as they would put a man in the center of the room or in one area of the room, and he would dictate verbally 
to those that were sitting around the room. Now, if we did that in the day that you and I live, we would put a person in here, maybe at the pulpit, we'd give each of you a pad of paper and a pen, and we would say, okay, let's, uh, let's dictate Psalm 11. And I would, so I would begin to read slowly. In the Lord put I my trust. And I would do that at a pace that you could write. Uh, they did not do it that way. Because they wanted to ensure the absolute accuracy of those copies, they would dictate them one, not one word at a time, not even one sentence at a time. They would dictate them one letter at a time. And they would do two things. They would take their time doing it. In fact, it was not uncommon for it to take an entire day to write one page of Scripture. When was the last time it took you from sunup until sundown to write one, one sheet of paper? This is how meticulous they were. If they made one error in writing the letter, they didn't cross it out and, and keep going. They literally threw the paper away, pulled out a clean sheet of paper, and started at the beginning again. If there was one punctuation mark that was missed, they wouldn't cross it out. If they missed it, they'd just put it in. But if they had put a wrong uh, punctuation mark in, they didn't just cross it out. They would throw the paper away, pull out another sheet of paper, and start at the beginning again. This is how careful they were. Oftentimes, uh, when they would come to, especially in Old Testament, those that were transcribing Old Testament Scriptures and, and the Jewish people, uh, oftentimes when they would come to the name of God uh, or reference to God, they would stand up, they would go wash themselves, they would put on a new garment, they would get a new quill that had never been used before, and then come back and write the name. This is how meticulous, how sacred these scriptures were to these folks. Rightfully so, because they were getting their doctrine from it. And they wanted to ensure that they had a pure word of doctrine. Uh, of, of Scripture to get their doctrine from. So this takes place in the early church. Now, there was some doctrinal heresy coming in. Paul taught against this. He talks about false teachers that are coming in. He talks about people that were uh, erring according to the Scriptures and that they uh, were not understanding Scripture correctly. So Paul gives some insight in his uh, epistles and gives some clarity to some things. But understand that this battle for doctrine uh, took place in the early first century church. There was a group of folks who embraced and held on to doctrinal error. Now, one of the key issues of doctrine in the, all the way back to uh, early, AD one, early 100s was the issue of baptismal regeneration, meaning they believed that a person had to not only put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, but they had to put their faith and be baptized in order to be saved. Now, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches us this by faith alone, uh, that people are saved. And so, so because there was this belief of baptismal regeneration, that led them to a second error. And if baptism was required for salvation, then what if a child, which back then uh, infant mortality rates were through the roof, I mean, Children died because of the sanitary conditions and health conditions. So the, the, the next obvious logic from a false doctrine was, well, let's baptize them at the earliest age possible so that if they die as a child, they're saved because they believed in baptismal regeneration. Along with those errors, uh, there were some that did not hold to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They felt like that was a falsified account and that there were uh, uh, that that was just a, a, a symbolic resurrection, not a literal uh, resurrection, and they held to this. There were some that did not hold to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Among these men that would hold to these doctrines uh, was a man by the name of Origen. Origen was a philosopher. He was from the area of Alexandria, Egypt, which is where you get people like Plato and Aristotle, some of these men that were considered by the world to be great philosophers. Uh, but Alexandria, Egypt, was a, a uh, hotbed for, uh, for sinful living, let's put it that way, very liberal-minded uh, thinking of things. Origen uh, denied the resurrection. He denied the virgin birth. He denied uh, salvation by faith. 
and, and, and several other major areas that you and I would have problems with him on. Origen uh, begins to take the old Latin. Uh, there were two major versions in that day that were being used in the early church, the old Latin versions and uh, what was called the Syriac, uh, which was an, uh, uh, an Arabic, uh, Aramaic uh, language uh, version as well. Those two were very carefully and closely guarded in their, in their copies. They were very, very careful with those. Origen takes the Old Latin and he changes it in 40,000 different places in, in Scripture. He changes the Scripture. He does this because the Scripture didn't agree with his doctrine. So, so I want to simplify the issue for you here. The issue of Scripture really boils down to this. Do we get our doctrine from the Bible or do we get our Bible from our doctrine? And that is the simplicity of the versions of Scripture. On one side, you have people who say, we've got to have pure doctrine, so therefore we've got to have a pure Scripture. And they have been meticulously, all the way from the early church, careful in how they transcribed the Scriptures, how they brought the Scriptures down, and made sure that they did not have Scriptures that had error with them. They didn't even take the chance on it being crossed out and corrected. And they just wanted to make sure it was an impeccable copy without error. Um, on the other side, you had people who held to a particular set of doctrinal beliefs, and they didn't like the fact that the Bible wasn't in agreement with them. So Origen changes it 40,000 times. Now, down through the years, you have different groups that are Baptistic in their doctrine, in their faith. We would not agree in every point, but on the major issues of salvation, virgin birth, deity of Christ, the Trinity, these, these core doctrines that we as Baptists hold to, even many of the Baptist distinctives that we hold to, uh, these groups of people uh, would hold to these things. Why? Uh, not because they were part of a denomination, but because they went to the Bible and they saw that, hey, this is what the Bible teaches. And so you have people like the Monetists, that's what they were called, the Novations. A lot of these men were, or a lot of these groups were named by the men who kind of led the groups. So that's where they get their names from. If you, how many of you have ever looked up on the internet to find out when the Baptist movement began? Any of you ever looked that up? Okay, don't, don't bother. Because they're going to tell you it started uh, with a man by the name of, of Smythe in the 1500s in England. That is not correct. The, the doctrines that we hold to, the distinctives that we hold to, literally trace all the way back through the Donatists, the Novations, the Monetists, all the way back to the early church. And there has been that remnant of folks all the way down through that time. These are the defenders of purity of Scripture. These are the ones that find the scribes that will be that meticulous on transcribing copies of uh, the original languages. You have the, Car uh, the, uh, uh, you have the Albigenses, you have the Waldenses, you have the Lollards. And eventually we get to what are called the Anabaptists. In the 1500s, they finally dropped the Anna and just called them the Baptists. Um, and the reason they were called Baptists were because they were considered to be the rebaptizers, the Anabaptists, meaning that they did not hold to baptismal regeneration or infant baptism. They believed that baptism was believer's baptism, that you get baptized once you are saved. You trust Christ as your Savior, then you follow the Lord as a, as a sign of obedience and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is why they became known as the Baptists. Now that group of people have always held to the fact that our doctrine comes from our Scripture, therefore we must have a pure word of Scripture. They have been meticulous defenders of it to the point of being literally put to death. They were, they were men, women, and children. If you, if you ever get an opportunity, and I would... I'll caution you with this, you'll probably weep through most of it. If you ever get an opportunity to read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll see the price that was paid for us to have today in our hands a preserved and pure Word of God, men that paid the ultimate price, women that paid the ultimate price, and sad to say, even children that paid the ultimate price. Uh Around the 185 to late hundreds A.D. was when Origen did his work. Then we have a group of churches who said, look, this church over here has some doctrine. This church over here has some doctrine. They don't all agree. This one over here has doctrine. 
tell you what, let's do. Why don't we get all the church fathers together, the, the, the pastors, the men that are leading, the elders. Let's all come to one big council. And let's discuss what we're going to be able to agree on doctrinally so that we can have a unified group of, of doctrine. And it's during these councils that, if you've ever heard of the Apostles' Creed, uh, that was developed. And uh, they started this, first of all, with what was called the Council of Nicaea. This was in 325 A.D. Now, while the Roman Catholic Church has its... They claim they have the roots all the way back to Peter because they believe that Peter was the first pope, which is not... Uh, the first time that they actually kind of organize and say uh, we're going to be married to the state, church and state together, uh, comes out of this Council of Nicaea. Uh, and this is where, if, we're, if we as Baptists are looking back, we say that's where the Catholic Church started as we know it today, or as we know the group and organization today. Uh, obviously, a lot has happened since that time. This group... Uh, following Origen's lead and men like him, said we have this pope, this leader, who is the vicar of Christ. And therefore, whatever he says is on the same plateau and equivalent as if Christ himself said it. And they are basically saying then that whatever the pope says is as inspired as what the Holy Spirit did when He inspired the writers of our Scriptures. And so they make whatever these men say to be new doctrine in the church. Of course, we saw over the years, as the Roman Catholic Church began to add doctrines and sacraments and all these different types of practices, uh, we find purgatory being entered into the picture. We find uh, indulgences entering into the picture when they uh, wanted to raise some funds and some money. But by the time we get to the 1500s, uh, the Dark Age, what we call, or 1200s, I'm sorry, where we get to the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, that you may have studied in history, we now have a church that is so corrupt in their doctrine, they don't want the common man to read the Scriptures. They're afraid if they read the Scriptures, they're going to see that there's a problem there. And for years, they made it against the law. This is where the, the, the marriage of church and state was so beneficial to them. Because they had not only church authority, they had legal authority to demand that men were not allowed to read Scripture. They would chain the Bibles literally shut on the pulpits of their, of their churches uh, and uh, for the purpose of the fact that the laity, the common man, were not as enabled by God as the clergy, that the clergy were a step above in how God blessed them to have understanding of Scripture that the layperson could not understand it for themselves. And that's how they got around introducing doctrinal error. If anybody questioned it, it was, well, the Pope said it. He's the vicar of Christ. And if you don't understand it, that's because you're a laity. You're not clergy. You don't have this special unction from God to understand the way. So they didn't want people reading Scripture. They didn't want people understanding Scripture. And people literally died deaths for owning and having in their possession Scripture. They were burned at the stake. They were filleted alive. They were torn in pieces and torn asunder for simply owning a piece of Scripture and having it in their possession during these times. Um, then along comes... The, the, well, the finally, finally enough was uh, problematic that uh, the Roman Catholic Church finally said, listen... There's such a difference between the Scripture we have, which was already the corrupted texts uh, that Origen had introduced a lot of that into. Uh, there's such a difference between Scripture and our doctrine, and they commissioned a, a man by the name of Jerome, St. Jerome, to come on the scene, and they commissioned him to fix the Bible. <laughs> That's the way they basically approached it. We want to have him fix the Bible. Jerome, in order to have a working understanding of making these, these issues, he spends his life savings to buy every work that Origen wrote. You know, the man who's, who changed Scripture 40,000 different places. Uh, he invests every cent he owns to buy all of the works of Origen as his source for, for fixing the Bible for the Catholic Church. Jerome comes in and he changes it 5,000 other places. 
so that their Bible will be in agreement with their doctrine. So you see the difference here. So we have one group of people who says, we want to be pure in doctrine, so we're going to go to Scripture for it. On the other side, you have a group of people saying, our doctrine doesn't match the Bible, we need to fix the Bible then. And really, the issue of Bible versions comes down to those two. You're on one side of that coin or the other. You're either saying, I've got to have a pure word to have pure doctrine, or... I've got this doctrine, this thing I hold to and believe, and I need my Bible to match it. And you check me out on this. Most people who don't know better, when they go looking for a version of Scripture that they want to use, they begin with, this is what I believe about something. I'm going to find the Bible that best matches what I believe. Check me out on it. Uh, Nine times out of ten, you're going to be finding people looking for a version of Scripture that will help them feel most comfortable in their own beliefs, meaning they want their Bible to match their doctrine or their, their belief system. Um, a very important thing happens in the late 1500s. A man uh, in Germany by the name of Gutenberg invents something very, very famous. Anybody know what that was? Printing press. You know why he invented the printing press? What his sole purpose was for inventing the printing press? To print the Bible. He had a burden for the common man, the laity, the ones who are, according to some churches, inferior in their knowledge of Scripture and that God does not enable them or give them a special unction of the Holy Spirit to understand Scripture. He felt differently on that. He thought the common man needs to read this. They need to know this. And so Gutenberg comes on the scene, late 1500s. This is vitally important. Because there were some good versions that had been translated uh, very carefully down through uh, the Old Latin and the Old Syriac, uh, in that one of the greatest English translations that we had prior to our King James Bible was known as the Tyndale Bible. Now, there's a lot of others there, and we're not going to, for sake of time, go into each of those. But when the King James translators uh, came to it, they were to use the Tyndale Bible as a, as a major source of their interpretive work and where it was agreeable to use it in every aspect without change. And uh, that was one that was greatly used by uh, a lot of uh, uh, churches up until the time of King James. King James comes on the scene, and there are multiple Bibles out there. There's the, uh, the uh, Latin Vulgate, which is what the work of Jerome came to be known as, the Latin Vulgate. Uh, and then you have still your, your English versions that have been translated down through the Syriac and uh, the Old Latin. Uh, so Gutenberg comes on the scene. King James says, okay, we want to we come up with one authorized version that we, I mean, it's going to be the monumental work of making sure that it is the most uh, inclusive, most... Uh, solid, most authoritative, something that we can put our stamp on and say, we believe this to be without error. Now, I say all that to say that was King James's intent. All right, He was looking at it strictly from a human standpoint. And so he wanted to get the best scholars in the world. Uh, there were uh, 54 men that were chosen. <clears throat> only, only 47 of them actually did the work. But there were, uh, out of those men, most of them were selected because they were intellectual giants in the area of uh, antiquitous languages. Most of them in archaic biblical languages that were no longer even written or spoken at the time. And there were some of them that, that there was one guy, and I wish I could remember which one he was, uh, what his name was, but by the age of nine was speaking, writing, and understanding fluently Koine Greek, which is the Greek that the New Testament was, most of the New Testament was written in. By the age of nine, can you imagine that? He, he could speak fluently like seven different antiquitous languages. Uh, one of the ones that was the, the, the chief head of all of the translators uh, was fluent in 13 antiquitous languages. Fluent in every one of them. And I made a comment in the earlier service that there are people today that are trying to nitpick our King James Bible and say this should be better translated this way if you look at the Greek or if you look at the Hebrew. There's two problems with that. Number one, they're looking at the wrong source because they're using a, uh, an inferior set of manuscripts to begin with, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. 
But secondly, uh, they are uh, assuming greater scholarship than the men that King James chose from all over the world. And I will just tell you this. There is nobody alive in the world today that can even hold a candle to even one of these men of the King James translations. All of that to be said, that's all from a human idea of the meticulousness and the care with which this Bible was translated. Um, add on top of that, actually, we're going to add that on top of the foundation that we saw in Psalm 12, verse number 7 which is the promise of God to preserve for every generation a pure word. So not only do I believe that there was great scholarship used, and I do believe he did, but God always used the tools in the hands of the men. He's done that all through history. Uh, Just because they were scholarly men would not be sufficient enough for me to say it's without error. Because men are fallible. And you'll hear people say, well, these translators, they, they were corrupt too. They were men too. They could put their little nuance of what they believed into it too. Except for the fact that I believe not only were they scholarly, able to do these things, that the rules they followed were so meticulously careful, that the source of manuscripts they're pulling from were the source that came down through this purity line and not through the, through the impure line. For those reasons, but the fact also that God has made a promise, therefore I believe, based on Psalm 12, that they were supernaturally aided in the translation work. I don't believe in double inspiration. I don't believe God rebreathed it to them. But I believe that He enabled them through the Holy Spirit's leading to make sure that every word they translated was exactly the word that God intended for English-speaking people. So... This, this Latin Vulgate, these old script manuscripts that uh, Jerome translates from, he translates from uh, Origen's work, or he takes a lot of Origen's work, and then he translates from some scrolls that were found mostly in Alexandria, Egypt. And so these are the, which, again, Alexandria, Egypt being the hotbed for corruption and, and men's philosophies, these are the sources of the manuscripts that Jerome uses to make his Latin Vulgate from. Um, he makes some copies of it. There are copies that were found, some old scrolls that were found, uh, a couple different places, several different places. One was in the Vatican. Uh, one was in uh, a monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai called the Sinaiticus. You have the Vaticanus. Uh, and then you've got one or two other manuscripts that they found. They tried to add the Dead Sea Scrolls into this to support the, the idea of these, these handful of, of old manuscripts that they have. Out of those few manuscripts, and there's only about three uh, completed ones or mostly complete ones, and then you have a few others that uh, they use that are partial portions to, to tie together with that. Two doctors by the name of Westcott and Hort came along and said, we believe that these, because of the antiquity of the manuscripts, because of how old they are, that these are the most accurate. Now, how many of us here today understand that just because something is older doesn't mean it's more accurate? Okay? You put it in a corrupt part of the country and have them scribe it down, and you have men that are trying to change it to fit their doctrine, you can rest assured there's corruption in those manuscripts. On the other side, you've got over 5,000 manuscripts that all come from the line of the Monetists, Novations, the Donatists, and this group that said, we want purity of doctrine, purity of word. We call it the received text or the authorized text. Some people refer to, especially the Greek ones, as the Textus Receptus. But you have the Hebraic text, you have uh, the uh, Textus Receptus, and then you have some Latin texts uh, from the Old Latin. And uh, so where we get our translation from, it is from the manuscripts, the received text, the authorized text, if you will, uh, that follow this line of purity. Every other version of Scripture, I cannot iterate this enough, every other version of Scripture, Trump comes from the few manuscripts that Westcott and Hort put together and said, we believe these, because of their age and antiquity, these are the ones. Out of the three major ones where they have mostly complete works, they disagree with each other more than 40% of the time. If you only have three of them to compare, and they disagree with each other more than 40% of the time, how do you know which one is right? 
at that point, you have to make a subjective decision that, well, this is, seems right, so I'm going to write it down. Uh, so we have an inferior set of texts. And every other version of Scripture in the English language, every other one, without exception. And so I had somebody, I was telling somebody this and teaching this to somebody here a while back. They said, okay, what about the New King James Version? They said, well, we're just going to update the archaic these and thous and thuses and and we're just going to we're not going to change any of the words, any of the meanings. We're just going to update the archaic words. And the intent was right. Now, I, I will say this: I don't even think the archaic words needed to be updated. I believe that God gave us the these, the thous, and I have reasons for that. Uh, can't teach all of that here today, but those make a difference in how you read the passage. They really do. Uh, ye and you are not the same. Because things that are different are not the same. And they literally, they make a difference in how you read a passage. Maybe we'll take some time to teach on some of that one time. I did teach it about a year ago to some people that were here for some of our Bible uh, lessons downstairs. Those archaic words make a difference in how you read the Scriptures. But even if that were the case, even if the New King James people said, uh, we're only going to change the these and thous into yous and yours and, and things like that. First of all, I, I take issue with the fact it does change the verse. But secondly, even if that was their intent, that's not what it ended up being. If you take some time to understand where they ended up coming from, they took a large emphasis from the New American Standard Version. When they started doing their translation work, they started off probably with what some people would look at and say, well, they had a right motive, they had the right you know, idea. But because they allowed the New American Standard Version to be their, their litmus test, if you will, or their, their comparable Scripture, therefore it is also influenced by a line of corrupt texts. Can, can somebody be saved with the New King James Version Bible? Sure they can. They can, because faith is what saves them. In fact, the book of Romans tells that even those who don't have the Word of God, they can even be saved. As long as they understand they're a sinner and that they're needing a Savior, nature itself uh, bears witness. Their own conscience bears witness. The Bible says so that they are without excuse. So can they be saved through uh, the New King James Yes, men can be saved by it. Are they going to get doctrinally uh, fed by that? Are they going to be doctrinally correct by it? No. There's going to be problems. Why would a church, in good conscience, knowingly come to the pulpit with a book that they know for a fact is inferior? They know for a fact there are problems with it. They know for a fact it changes our doctrine that we've held to for so many centuries. Why would you in good conscience use a Bible like that? And I'll give you the answer. Because it brings in more people. Uh, <laughs> when you water down the preaching of the sinfulness of man, the fact that even after we're saved, our flesh nature is still at war with us, and you begin to water down those two issues, people don't like to hear that. They like to live comfortably. They don't want to have to fight every day to bring their flesh under subjection. So therefore, they're going to try to find a Bible that most agrees with the way they live, that most agrees with their belief system, their doctrines. These men that have made other versions of Scripture have primarily done it for one reason, and that is because they could copyright it and make money off of it. And there's not another version of Scripture out there other than the King James Version that is not copyrighted. King James Version is public domain. I say that, but let's back up. It is held, the copyright is held by the Crown in, in England. However, they've opened it up and given permission to every person. Freely. Every other version of Scripture, even the New King James is copyrighted and sold for money. I, I don't know I, I don't know how to express how much confidence we can have that this book 
is inspired and preserved without error. The meticulous care that was taken. Forty-seven men. I'm just going to go through these real quick. Forty-seven men actually worked on the translation. Uh, out of them, uh, they were divided into three companies. Uh, I'm sorry, six companies in three different locations. Two in each location. Westminster, England, Cambridge, England, and Oxford, England. So they had two groups in each one, made up of about five men apiece. Each of those groups would take a portion of Scripture. They would translate it initially. Each member of the company, each of the five, would make their own individual translation. And uh, when the passage was done, uh, that, that passage had been translated a minimum of at least five maybe in sometimes six or seven times, depending on how many men were in that group at the time, by men of, of great of scholarly. Once they were done, and they had this thing translated either five to seven times, depending on the size of their group, they would then come and bring them all together, and they would jointly compare them. If there was a major disagreement in even one area, they threw the entire translation out, and all seven of them went back and redid it, or five of them. Sometimes it was just a small thing, and they would say, yeah, that can easily be changed there, and they would be in agreement on it. But, but if there was any disagreement of even one point in their translation work, they would throw it out and say, we're going to start over. Then they would come back and do it all over again, meet together again. This is the care that they would do it. Once those were done, the final review of the entire translation, um, were, or those translations were then passed along to the other five companies. So again, you have six groups, two of them each location. So as soon as the group finally, when they finally agreed on it, they would take their, their final draft and they would send it to the other five groups. And all of them had to look at that translation and say, we, we agree. We believe in that. If any of them didn't, it went back to the group. They threw it away and started all over again. So you see the care with which this is taken. Once that was done, the final review for the entire translation, there was a general committee that was made up of two men from each of the original companies. They would then take that final overall revision and they would once again go over it with careful detail, every word, word for word. And they would do this. Using this method, each passage was closely gone over and had to be agreed on at least 14 times before they finally said, let's publish it. Never has such care been taken in any other translation work. Not only the scholarliness of this, but the care with which they did it. All of the translators were graduates from universities like Oxford, Cambridge. Um, 22 of them were in their 40s, 16 of them were in their 30s, 15 of them were in their 50s, 3 of them in their 60s, and 3 of them in their 20s. All of them had familiarity with the ancient languages of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Often, many of them had much more linguistic uh, education. Um, this was said of, of, of these men that the population from which scholars can now be drawn is much larger than in the 17th century. But it would be difficult now to bring together a group of more than 50 scholars with the range of languages and knowledge of other disciplines that characterize the King James translators. Couldn't be done in the day we live. The scholarliness of this. There's a big group uh, of diversity. You get any two men today to agree on Scripture, and that's a miracle. You get 43 of them to do it, or 47 of them to do it, I'm sorry. That's, that's supernatural. That's God saying, this is, this, is an approved, this is an approved translation. This is the one that I want without error. There's a list of rules I'm not going to take time. We're already 20 minutes after two, and I know many of you are uh, audibly fatigued. Your hearing has grown tired. I will make these available to you if you'd like to have a copy of these. I don't have copies today, but I'll, I'll make sure I have them for you by next week if you want to. There are 15 rules that the translators followed. When you read them, you'll, you'll scratch your head and say, I can't believe they went to that care to make sure that they were accurate in their translation work. Now, all that being said, Psalm 12, verse number 7. Speaking of these pure words that are tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, he says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever.
we can sit here today with absolute full confidence, not just because of the human effort and care, but because God promised. And I believe there is no doubt, there is there's not even room for hesitation in saying that this old King James Version is not just a inspired and preserved Word of God. It is the, the only one. There are no others that are inspired, preserved without error for us English-speaking people. There is no other version of Scripture out there that we can say that about. That being the case, (laughs) any other version prior to this or other than this has to be fallible. There has to be something wrong because things that are different are not the same. Paul said that we are an angel from heaven, teach any other gospel than that which is preached, let him be accursed. And we need to look at it that way. We need to look at it as other versions of Scripture teach something other than what this book here teaches. The Bible tells us it needs to be accursed. It needs to not be a part of what we do. It needs to be looked at as something that is against and contrary to God. Uh, Now, does that mean, again, somebody can't be saved by it? No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that for a Christian who believes Psalm 12, verse number 7, I don't think there's any other conclusion we can come to than the fact that the King James Version, English speaking, is the preserved, inerrant, preserved, infallible Word of God. No doubt about it. I will make some of these notes available to you if you'd like to have them. I've got some of the historical stuff available to you. Not all of it's on the paper Uh, But some of it's there. And then I'll make the 15 rules. I don't have copies of that today, but I'll make those available if any of you'd like some of those. And it might help you with this. Folks, we need to be established on this thing. We need to have absolute confidence and be steadfast and sure that our authority, everything we hold to, everything we believe, everything we believe, everything we practice, everything that we have as a distinctive of our lives, the, the standards that we place in our lives, all of it has to come from this book. And all of it needs to come from a pure source. Even Jesus in His earthly ministry talked about a corrupt spring, a corrupt well, water that springs up. You can't get good water from it. A corrupt tree, you can't get good fruit from it. It's got to be something that we know is pure and without error. And if we don't know that, then we can't even preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because we have no authority to stand on it. We have to be able to know that this Word is is sure. All right, let's stand together. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it and use it. Lord, we've gone lengthy today, a lot longer than we normally do in these uh, services. I pray that You would give graciousness to our folks. And Lord, thank You for their patience with it. But Lord, the matter that we've dealt with today is a crucial matter. It's an issue that must be understood and must be adhered to if we're to have any authority.